Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk Nerdy. I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. I want to thank those of you who um, went and visited my brand new Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash talk nerdy. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, Patreon's a really cool site that sort of has a hybrid model. It's kind of similar to the um, PayPal button that I have on my website there at carasanamaria.com to help support the show. But it's it's sort of like an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter, like a cool crowdfunding thing. But instead of just being a single goal, it's, it's sort of ongoing. And I've got all sorts of um, milestone goals on there, like getting a new laptop, because as you probably don't know, why would you know? I had to restart this recording like five freaking times. <laughs> it is time. It is time. My laptop, she's a dying. Um, but also like new microphones and some things that I kind of think I need to do to upgrade now that I am in, you know, my second 50. Pretty crazy. Um, so there's a few of you. Well, thank you to everybody who visited and to everybody who supported. And one of the um, thank you levels is to give a shout out on the air. So I want to go ahead and give that shout out to Jeffrey Sewell and to Chuck Pell. And also over on PayPal, um, because that portal is still open there on my website, I want to give a shout out to Amy Arnold. Thank you all so much for your really generous donations. They really help um, keep the podcast going and keep it free for everybody to listen to. Um, and thank you to everybody else who visited 
patreon.com slash talk nerdy. I have a little um, gift for you guys who do make a pledge. Um, and you'll see what that is after you do it. There will be a little thank you message there with a little gift. I'll tell you that it has something to do with the Talk Nerdy store. All right. Um, what else? What else? What else? I think that's really all the news this week. Oh, oh, you know what? I did a really cool project recently with um, with GE and with Vice, and I'm really proud of it. And the first three episodes actually dropped this week. And so you can visit those. Um, I think you can go to Motherboard, Vice Motherboard, and see the first three episodes there. Or you can go to GE's YouTube page um, called Invention Factory. That's what the series is called. And we've got three episodes up about how we're going to see the world differently, the future of robots, and also the future of flight. And um, gotta say, I'm really excited about them. So check those out too, because I a lot of hard work went into them. Um, so so I'm pretty proud to see them finally coming to air. Okay, enough about this and me and support and yay, talk nerdy. Let's actually talk nerdy. You guys, I'm really excited about this week's guest. You have been listening to him for over 20 years, you've been listening to his um, brilliant and soothing voice on NPR, on National Public Radio. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's listen to him some more. He is the science correspondent for NPR. Uh, here he is, Joe Palka. Joe, I'm so excited that I get to finally get you on the podcast. It's <laughs> great. It's so great. I'm glad that you're in town. I'm glad that I get a chance to see you. I know it's a busy weekend for you, so I, I definitely thank you for taking the time to visit Shea Santa Maria. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's the beginning of the empire, you know. I can say I was there when it started. <laughs> you were here when it was on my dining room table. Right. Someday it'll be on the 48th floor of Santa Maria Tower. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. One can only hope. Yeah. Um, so, so you and I met when we did a panel together. We actually met first professionally, and then we met personally through our uh, mutual friend, Rachel Porter. Right. Um, was that panel the one at, I guess it was like ASBMB? Yeah, C San Diego. San Diego. A ASCB, ASBMB, one of those mm -hmm. uh, societies for very right. important biology. Exactly, for yeah. things that I... Mostly understand. Right, right. <laughs> I thought that p panel was hilarious because I was trying. Who was the? There was the Nobel Prize winner. Yes, I don't remember what his name was, but he was. Um, he was a bit older. Than yes, us. he was older than us, and um, he was very uh, traditional, shall we say? Yes. And so uh, it was like me saying, "No, you know, we can." I'm embarrassed. I don't remember his name because I should anyway. Um, and and then you guys, you and another another young younger reporter. woman who worked in I think synthetic biology. Right. Yeah. So you're sitting on my left. I'm in the middle, and and this guy's on my right, and he's going, "Well, you know, the media get it wrong a lot of the time, and you really shouldn't talk to the media unless you absolutely have to." And I'm going, "No, no, 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 no. That's not right at all." Anyway, somebody came up to me after. I don't know if I had a chance to tell you this, and he said, "Boy, that was great. It was like Grandpa, Dad, and the kids." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that pretty much nails it, you know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing what you guys are up to, but I so, I so appreciate it. But Grandpa wasn't on. I Grandpa mean, was not on board at all. Right. He was, yeah, he was very resistant, which was funny because his whole thing was like, you shouldn't self promote, and right. I think that that is really um, kind of. Uh, that is what the old guard is saying. And that's what we get frustrated with sometimes in science communication. There is a much older, more traditional guard that is slowly but surely kind of not there anymore. 
I don't think that they don't want to self-promote. I mean, self-promote maybe isn't the right word, but I think that I think that what they worry most about is losing control of the message. Gotcha. And and because I everybody everybody want, that I talk to wants to be on NPR. I mean, nobody says, "Oh no, I don't want to talk to you." They all want to be on NPR, but that's because they're comfortable with I, what I do. You know, they yeah. they know it, they recognize it. They don't know quite what you're up to yet, and they don't know if you're gonna make you make you sound like uh, you know MTV. And 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 go crazy in some nut, nutty direction, mm-hmm. or whether you're going to sound like something that makes sense to them scientifically. I think what you what what's possible, what you've shown is possible, is you can you can be completely accurate and completely spot on with the science. You just don't tell it in the way they're used to hearing. Yes, yes, we tell it in a in a younger way and mm-hmm. sometimes in a more kind of conversational way. I think yeah. that that's what we push for. But at the same time, I think that there is a fear of getting burned that doesn't even so much come from new media, but in many ways comes from traditional media. I think that specifically what you've done for uh, so many years at NPR is you've built up a kind of trust Mm -hmm. with the science community Mm -hmm. and with the public Mm -hmm. that says that you are this liaison between the two and and we know that we're getting solid factual information and they know that the public is getting that information translated in a way that's acceptable. But a lot of traditional television news and print journalism sometimes just gets it wrong because you have these journalists that don't have backgrounds in science, that aren't trained as science journalists, and that sometimes are pushing kind of, I don't know, they're they're under pressure to sell more pages. They're under pressure to make it sound a little more fiery, a little more sexy. Right, right. No, there's always, you know, I I tell people small earthquake, few injured doesn't get you a big headline. (laughs) Um, It's a problem. I think it's gotten, it's actually probably, there was a funny time about 20 years ago where it wasn't such a problem in the sense that there were a lot of newspapers with a lot of science journalists and a lot of even television stations uh, our television networks too that had their own science correspondence. So if you go to Bob Bazell at NBC, you know you're going to get a pretty straight story. It's not going to be inflated or or exaggerated or wrong. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the general assignment reporter at the local NBC station in St. Louis, I mean, I remember I, it's it's crazy. I mean, I remember sitting someplace. I was on the road and I flipped on the television and someone said, "There's a new cure for breast cancer." And I thought, "Gee, I think if I knew about a cure for breast cancer, I might have heard about it." No, of course yeah. it wasn't a cure. It was a treatment. It was a you know, modest advance, it was that kind of thing. These guys don't understand, the local, the non-science journalists don't understand the subtlety and nuance of making a, uh, making a progress without solving the problem, if you want to put it that way. That's a good point. And, and so they, they, as you say, they're looking to lead the show. Mm-hmm. And you don't lead the show with modest advance. You lead the show with cure. Yeah, and that's and, a big that's a big frustration I think for a lot of people who first dip their toe into science journalism is understanding that science occurs at a slower pace than what a lot of people are used to and it's very very rare, very rare that news breaks in science. You you yeah, I mean you're telling you say exactly what I I'd give a talk now called Science and News a Marriage of Convenience <laughs> because uh I'm a science writer. I want to be on the radio. I want to get onto the All Things Considered a Morning Edition. So it has to be news. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that I've been. I have another talk which I've been giving lately of the two stories I've done in my career. Huge impact. Both of them. Neither of them had a drop of news. Which ones? <laughs> well, one was some. <clears throat> one was a long time ago, like fifteen or eighteen years ago. Uh, about a guy named Richard Seed that you've probably never heard of. But this was, in 98, there was Dolly the sheep, the clone sheep. That, yes. And so 
oh, we took a cell from an adult sheep and we made an exact copy. Oh, could you do that with humans? Well, that was the obvious question. And of course, you can imagine what the mainstream media did with, with what ifs, yeah. right? So uh, there was this conference where this guy, Richard Seed, stood up. Uh, uh, it, was a, it was a medicine and law conference. And he said, I'm going to do it. Everybody looked, <coughs> looked at him like he was, oh, yeah, sure. And, and you're going to go to the moon right afterwards. But um, I actually went in touch, got in touch with him. And he had uh, uh, gotten a fertility clinic in Chicago to agree to do the procedure. Maybe not in Chicago, but, you know, the procedure yeah. of doing Dolly was you take out cells, you put in cells, and it's not, it, it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't the procedure that was new, it was the thinking to try to do it that was new, yes. and then getting it to work that was new. So there was no, you know, it wasn't as if any well-stocked uh, fertility clinic couldn't try this with a human patient. And I actually went and met and talked to the doctor. He didn't want to be on the air, but I talked to him. So I was satisfied that this was a real attempt. So I did a story that said Richard Seed is planning to try to clone a human being. And there's no, basically the story was, and there's nobody really to stop him. Mm -hmm. The FDA hadn't really tackled the question. Local medical societies, everybody had said bad, bad, bad. But nobody yeah, but there's ever no did. laws in there's place. There's no laws in place. So what's the news there? There's nothing. I'm going to try to clone a human being. That's not news. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's. That's just not new, especially not a guy who had any track record for human reproductive physiology. Well, you can imagine. I mean, this got on the air, and everybody, they yeah. didn't hear the, the, the issue of cloning is a big deal, and we've got to address it, and this is an example of what could happen. They all said, Richard Seed's going to clone human beings. And so for a while, he was on NBC and CBS, and I'm on CNN. CNN, you know, because I'm the only one that knows how to find Richard Seed. Pretty soon it got easy. But there was no news. There yeah. was no news. It was, an, it was a story about what might happen if. And it became this huge maelstrom of news. In fact, I got pummeled by some of my colleagues because they said, why did you put him on the air in the first place? He didn't have any chance of doing this. And I said, I didn't say he was going to do it. Mm -hmm. I said he was going to try. And the interesting thing was there was nobody to stop him. And and anyway, that's that was my and the other one was even was just a couple of years ago. I went up to uh, JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I was just following up with somebody about the Mars rover Curiosity, mm -hmm. and I had heard um, what I had heard from a well-informed source that they were seeing a signal of carbon in some of their soil samples, and that was the you know that's the excitement because it carbon life um, yes. you know, um, but of course. NASA is a very uh, uh, regimented agency, and you, very do, much. you do not you do not get scoops with NASA with any uh, any help from them. And and so I was saying to the, the the scientist in charge of the mission, "Hey, what's new?" And he wasn't really ready to tell me. But right in the middle of my interview, the my tape recorder battery died, so I said I have to put in. And he jumped up and and went to his computer and you know was looking at data. And I said, hey, w w when I got started again, I said, what are you looking at? He said, oh, we're getting data back, you know, from the spacecraft, and it's it's or the lander. And he said, it's really interesting. It's going to be one for the history books. And I said, what? And he said, oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> <clears throat> so I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do here? Yeah. So instead of doing the story about about what he found, I did a story about what happens when scientists find something exciting and can't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, and they're not, they're basically not allowed to. Well, until... no, no, this is even a little different. I mean, like, you've been in the lab, you get a really exciting finding, and you say, oh, I'm going to, 
I'm going to call my wife or I'm going to call yeah. my boyfriend, but you don't publish. No, you can't. You, you have to repeat it. You have to repeat it. Mm-hmm. So that's where he was. I mean, even if he had simply said to me, we see the signature of carbon, but it's way premature. We don't know. I would have done a very responsible, very boring NPR story saying they're excited about a finding, but hold on, everybody, because it might not mean anything. Instead, they said, I can't tell you. So I did this story about this secret finding that NASA mm-hmm. wouldn't talk about, and it blew up. What's yep. the finding? Life on Mars. It was it was nonsense, but there was no news in my story because I wasn't able to confirm with two sources um, what this guy was looking at. And in fact, nine months later, when they stopped pillaring me in the media, uh, they admitted that they had in fact seen carbon, and it was, but it wasn't clear, and they didn't really, and it was a modest signal and very small. Anyway, you know what happens? It wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. What? All I'm saying is that there's this strange relationship between what's news and what becomes newsworthy. And what do you? I mean, what's your response to that when you see? legitimate news when you see something that comes out for example that you know there's a big um there's a big revelation at cern that signatures of the higgs field have actually been found and we now can confirm this uh this theory that's been held in quantum mechanics for a long time and that's legitimate news it's been tested it's been repeated and now everybody's comfortable to say it and then you have the opposite which is kind of like maybe there's the signal uh carbon or maybe this one research team found something that sort of looks like gravitational waves and let's talk right. about this but now we realize that that was more like noise right. so why is it that the things that blow up are the things that are the most kind of shrouded in secrecy. And how do we, I, I don't know, like how do we combat that in the media to actually, because our goal, right, is to improve science literacy. Well, but, is it, I'm, okay, so that's my question. What is our goal? That's what I've been thinking a lot about. Mm-hmm. So ha, yes, secrets, controversy, those play well in, in the media. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. But at the same time, I thought that the coverage of the Higgs boson or the Higgs field was, was reasonably good because people were struggling to explain this really difficult topic. But let's think about it in terms of science literacy. Did anybody really understand it? I don't think so. I think to really understand it, you have to get a PhD in quantum mechanics or particle physics or something. Oh, I, I agree. I think but, to really to understand, for example, the nuance between we don't want to talk about it like it's a particle because really we're talking about quantum wave theory and things right. like that. That's definitely nuance. But the fact that it's a it's a word that people on the street can recognize. But is that literacy? Yeah. See that I, I'm not challenging you. I completely agree. I got into this because I thought I want people to understand more about science now. You have a long format show. I'm doing three and a half minutes, you know, Oof. and I'm not, I'm not, I've given up on my mission, if there was one, to, to uh, educate people mm-hmm. because it's not, a, it's not a process that my format allows. No. In three the- and a half minutes, I can't educate. So I'm, I'm really confused about what I, what's the most I can do. I think you can ignite a spark, though. I mm-hmm. think that what you can do is you can make somebody go, what? Yeah. Really? I need to read more about that. Yeah. And that right there, honestly, I think that that is more powerful than me spewing for an hour at somebody about the same topic because I think that if you go out and you read about it yourself mm-hmm. and you try and answer questions that you've come up with in your own mind, you are going that information is going to stick with you for longer. So here's here's my suggestion. This is a bit of technology that's going to help us both, I hope. Mm-hmm. I want to have audio hyperlinks. You can be listening to something that somebody says or listening to this conversation and maybe you annotate it afterwards and you simply push a button on your 
listening device or on your phone, and it takes you to a web page that tells you more about that thing that you just heard about that you wanted to know more about. That would be very Wouldn't cool. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. You know, I recently, I recently had a sponsor actually on the podcast because that's a big part of the model, right, is to sell ad space so that you can keep afloat. Mm -hmm. And I have this wonderful sponsor who um, she herself had uh, dealt with brain damage in her own life. Mm -hmm. And she decided eventually to start this small business, it's just her, where she does um, uh, adaptive technology for people with uh blindness or low vision for people, deafness or low hearing, where, you know, she'll either transcribe a podcast for you or she'll make sure that it it's um, compatible with screen reader software and things like that. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately. It's, again, it's a monetary thing, but I think I just started a Patreon account so people can donate to the show themselves mm -hmm. and they can feel like they're really funding the show themselves. And I think one of the goals that I'm going to actually add, probably after the show, is to be able to use this service to do a full transcription of every episode that is fully annotated because mm -hmm. I think it is important. I get it all the time. People going, oh, your guest recommended that one book. What was it called yeah. again? Or how do I find yeah, it? Or, yeah, yeah. And it's important because, you know, that's more than anything, that's what we do, I think, is we spark an interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a physicist. I'm not, and yeah, I studied neuroscience, but I wouldn't even call myself a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. I never finished my PhD. Mm -hmm. You you did all the hard work. You're actually Dr. Joe Palka. That's right, yeah. But I don't call myself a sleep researcher anymore because that was 30 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get it. I, I don't, I think unlearning, the, unlearning what you're used to doing in graduate school was the hardest thing to becoming a journalist because you're so far, I mean, you're, you know, you take the tiniest step and you're already miles ahead of what a, 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 a graduate student would say, you know. We're just, we just blew through every precaution uh, that we were trained to observe in in the first few minutes of mm -hmm. what we're talking about, and and it, and it's really hard. A lot of people who want to make that transition just just struggle with it because they go, "You can't say that." Well, yeah, I can because I'm not teaching them about. I'm not doing a graduate seminar. I'm doing a public. Thing. Exactly. And I think what's what's sad to see is that there are legitimate scientists and um, oftentimes more grad students, but some more late career scientists who have managed to bridge that gap and who get lambasted mm -hmm. in the community. You know, you take like a Neil deGrasse Tyson, mm -hmm. who I think is very much living in the footsteps of what Carl Sagan went through, which was basically, we look now at Carl Sagan, we go, he was our hero and we quote him and we have all these memes and we watch Cosmos and with a bated breath and it's, it, so many people say, I became a physicist because of you. I became an astronaut because of you. But at the time, Sagan was like shit on by his colleagues. Mm -hmm. Like people were not pleased with what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that you see that with Neil. I think you see it with Brian Green. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. 
Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital, así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita prevnar 20 enespañolcom Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. And I think that you see it with Brian Cox. You see it with mm -hmm. a lot of these guys who are legitimate scientists who worked very, very hard at what they did, are still doing research to some extent, but um, definitely have taken science communication to be their more of their full-time career. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, that's, I have, so when I, I go out and talk to graduate students about, yes, you know, you're not a loser if you go on in a field other than your academic training. Yes. And because I have never, I haven't been called a loser in a long time. I mean, at least not professionally. But, you know, <laughs> no, you, you're not a loser if you don't do this. And the second thing is I, I said, I say to faculty members, if you make people feel like a loser for doing something other than what you did, you should be shot. You know, yeah. you, should, you should just be shot. You should be, you, and the other thing is, so scientists bleat all the time about, oh, we have to explain things to the public, we need more public communication, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, so one of their own does it, and as you say, yeah. they, they diss them. They say, you know, why, if, if you were any good, you wouldn't be talking to the public, you'd be working in the lab. Exactly. And, and, and to that mindset, I keep saying, get over yourselves, you know? You're not, th th this guy at Caltech was very interesting, Sri Kolkarni, he's, he's worth getting to know. But he said we were talking, and uh, he was saying, you know, scientists think they know what the news is, and he thinks, you know, they, they've been co-opting some of the news operation at Caltech, he thinks. I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But mm -hmm. the point is, scientists don't have good news judgment most of the time. They have to listen to us. Oh, yeah, because they also, I think a lot of times what happens is there's this huge disconnect between public perception and public understanding and, and the perception of somebody in like a learned environment about any sort of specific topic. Mm -hmm. So whereas, let's say even a, a lawyer, somebody who's like a, a, a historian or, um, or a, an academic in political science or law, they think about the news and they think about the nuance of certain conversations. And your everyday person who watches the news is like, I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Right. Like, I, I am not aware of that. That's not an issue. Like, right. did OJ do it? Like, it's very, right. it's, it's a totally different realm. Right. I mean, because the top, because they're not following it, it's like, People knew more about OJ because they were drawn in. So you could just talk about, you know, I can't remember anymore, the handkerchief they found. And you yeah, wouldn't have like to give the a glove. Lot of, the glove, and, 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 yeah. right, the glove. <laughs> if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Right. <laughs> so you could talk about those things, but you, you can't talk about like adaptive optics and say, oh, yes, I know all about that. You, most people don't know anything about that. The fact that every astronomer on the planet is, knows about adaptive optics and doesn't want to talk about it anymore, doesn't think it's newsworthy. Yeah. Okay, I get that. 
But that's because you're an astronomer. And there's people who listen to NPR who aren't astronomers, and they'd be fascinated by what you can do with this adaptive optics thing. Totally. I, I actually, like, and not to give too much away, because I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about, but in this new series that I'm working on, which I can't tell you what it is, but it'll be out soon, <laughs> I did get to interview and ride this um, hoverboard. Mm -hmm. I think some people have seen that in the news, that like a company, a startup company, actually came out with a hoverboard, and it actually does hover, and it, it works. And it's part of a bigger scientific problem that they're trying to solve. And this was more of like, I wouldn't call it a gimmick, but it was more of a public way to get people excited about mm -hmm. it. Um, but the idea behind how it works is, is relatively simple, but it involves a lot to do with magnets and electricity. And in interviewing, one of the biggest questions I had to ask was like, how does an electromagnet even work? Or like, what's the relationship between a magnet and electricity? Like, aren't they two sides of the same coin? Because most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. It's so like oh yeah, but that's not really what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with tuning them to the same frequency. It's like, no, you're already way ahead of what yeah, anybody right. else right, right, is going right. to get about this. The idea that like a magnet and electricity is almost the same thing, mm -hmm. that's like mind-blowing to it a is. lot of people. Well, it's like mind, black magic. Mind-blowing even if you understand it. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. And, and a lot of times I think scientists take things like that for granted. Yep, totally. And it is very important to be able to, to pour over those kinds of things in the media too. And sometimes you can tell, get a little bit frustrated maybe in the conversation or in the um, interview. Like, oh, that's not what I want to talk about. I want to focus on this aspect. And it's like, yeah, but you'll only be talking to me then. You right. won't be talking to anybody else. Right. No, that's, that's exactly true. <laughs> and so, I mean, I guess that's, in, in some ways, that is what we are attempting to do, right? It's Yes, I think it's, um, it's an obligation to the public to help improve literacy or to get excited, you know, get the public excited or any of the things that personal individuals who work in science and media, their own personal goals. But I think there's also a big part of it that we forget sometimes, which is maintaining the trust of the scientific community and making a scientist, when you sit down to have a conversation with them, feel safe. Mm -hmm. making them feel like you're not going to destroy their message, that you're going to be responsible with it. So here's another uh, problem, issue, question for science communicators as opposed to science journalists. Yes. And, um, I, I, you know, a lot of journalists, which I guess in, in one sense I am, you know, start to feel uncomfortable when they think I'm, I'm here to help you get your message out. I'm here to help mm. make sure people understand what you're doing because the traditional journalist is here to do that and to be critical of it and to... That's decide true. whether it's, it's appropriate or not. And sometimes not to help them get their message out at all because that would feel like advertising for them and that would feel, yeah. Right, if it's a politician, exactly. Exactly, like especially if you're doing investigative journalism, it's like, I don't care what you're trying to sell me, I want, I want the truth. Right, and so I have, tr I mean, I have gone through, a, I guess, a, something of a tradi tra transition in my career, which I was just thinking about yesterday, in that I used to have st stories with two sources or three sources where I'd say, Here's this finding, and then somebody would say, oh, I'm really excited about it, and they're credible, so they say, oh, I'm really... And then you talk to somebody else, but so-and-so says, I'm not so sure, and then it's, I'm Joe Palka. I mean, and I've decided that, that model, it, it's still very much in play. I mean, that's totally standard. You give, the, you give the finding, you give somebody saying it's really important, and then you give somebody who says, but wait a minute, it might not be. Yeah. And I'm almost done with that, because I, almost all my stories are... Here's what this guy did, and here's what here's you know why she thinks it's important, mm -hmm. and and I'm don't doesn't really matter if it's right or wrong or that important or not because as you were saying at the beginning, most stories in science aren't that important. Yeah. So and a lot of it is really as we talked about, it's about literacy. So right. it's about it's about saying like, look at it 
what's happening. Let's be critical, but you can offer that perspective right. too as the journalist. Let's be right. critical. Let's let's be cautious right. um, in our language right. and in our tone. You know, our level of excitement. And but really, it's like ugh, I just think it, it's about hammering it. It's about if I have to do fifty stories about synthetic biology before people understand what synthetic biology is, that's what I'm going to do. Right. But even after 50, it's going to be depressing. Because, exactly. And and believe me, I started when DNA, the blueprint of life. I mean, mm -hmm. when do you, what do you tell people? When do you decide what they know and they don't know? When, know. Do, you, when do you have to uh, spell out what DNA is? Or magnet. I mean, that's the other funny thing. I mean, there's some things that we say, oh, and it's a magnet or it's gravity. Like, oh, that's simple. Holy smokes. I know. You know. It's really just a label for something that even we as science journalists, like I think don't, I don't completely comprehend the, what a magnet is. It's still right. a bit magical to yeah. me. No, it's, it's a great challenge. Let's put that it way. really is. And you know what? I, 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 I want to bring up kind of an example of that because I would love to get some of your maybe advice or, or what your opinion is. You know, when I was working at the Huffington Post, it was um, one of the, my first forays into what I would call not science communication, but actual science journalism. And since I am not trained as a journalist and I've kind of learned some of my journalistic ethics and some of my journalistic approaches um, by being thrown into the newsroom, uh, I, I struggled a little bit and I resisted a little bit. And so when I was working there, I was working for my editor, David Freeman, who's still there running the science page. And I think I learned a lot from him, but I was, I was difficult. I know that I was difficult. I got hired on before he did. I got hired on to do a video series. Then he came in to run the page or the vertical. And there were times when I would get assignments that I disagreed with. There were times when I would get notes from him that I heavily disagreed with. And one time in particular, I remember very specifically Having a, a photograph from New Scientist sent mm -hmm. to me that was basically, it was a monkey with, um, in restraints behind a glass wall with a cap with all these electrodes in it coming out and then a robotic arm. And the idea was the monkey was using its brain, basically was thinking about moving the arm and when it would do it appropriately, it would get a juice treat. Mm -hmm. And I saw it and he said, I want you to write about this. And I said, okay, great. And I wrote about it. And then he read it and he said, no, 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 no. This is an advocacy piece for animal research. I want to know how that monkey is now, what happened to that monkey. He looks like he's being tortured, blah, blah, blah. And I got very upset. And I was like, I would never approach this story from that angle because as a science journalist and as somebody who came from science, I feel like my job is to look at what the prevailing... I don't know, fear or overwhelming kind of irrational views are about certain aspects of science in the public and help squash those. Because my, my view is also that I'm, I'm something of a skeptic and I'm, uh, I do kind of take that like educator approach to it. And so for me, it was, everybody's going to look at this and go, holy shit, that monkey's being tortured. And I want to come in and say, listen, this is what's happening in the research. This is what they do to make sure that the monkey feels comfortable during it. This is what we're learning about it. And hey, if you want to be anti-animal um, research, let me tell you all the things that you're not allowed to use in your life because it's hypocritical if you do. And I think that that was a basic struggle for me because he would often say, you're writing an advocacy piece. And I would often say, being a science journalist is being an advocate for science. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that is a real rift between traditional journalism and between this kind of new quote-unquote science communication. Yeah. No, I think, I think you nailed it. I think so... <laughs> so um, 
I turned down, I was, I was elected to be a fellow of the, trip, the American Association of the Advancement of Science, mm-hmm. and I turned it down, even though I, I knew I was being nominated and I was pretty sure I was going to get it. Oh, wow. And, and people turned, don't do that, right? People don't turn no, down no, a triple I got AS. A call, I got a call from the, the executive officer, who's a pal of a sort, and he said, what, why? And I said, because I'm not here about advocating science. Mm. And, and that's, that was explicit in the, in the, in the um, charter of the organization. And I thought, so, so, okay, so look, we're sitting here, we're talking. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing crime reporting. I'm not doing something else. I'm doing science reporting. So to some extent, I think it's valuable and worthwhile, and that's what I want to do. But I have always said to, to scientists that communicating about your work is a double-edged sword mm-hmm. because people could say, take the monkey experiment, people could say, look, I think that if handicapped people um, are able someday to use their brain waves to add to their lives and, and, and manipul- you know, manipulate uh, devices that will help make up for the, the, the things they can't do, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. But you know what? Here I am as a citizen of the United States, and I would rather those people sit in their chairs helpless than torture monkeys or yeah. harm monkeys. So I've always said to scientists, this, this information thing is a two-way street. If you think that people are going to think the way you do when you explain it to them, that might be wrong. Exactly. And so, you know, you and I, we, we've made that decision. We, we accept the trade-off of uh, animals being used in research because we're convinced that the benefit is worth it. I don't think, I mean, it's funny because that was one of my very first journalistic challenges was huh. uh, it's exact same thing. PETA released a, uh, a videotape of monkeys at an experiment at the University of Pennsylvania and I called the National Institutes of Health which funded the study and I said, what do you, you know, can you, you got to explain it. I have to have the other side yeah. so that people will know this is important research and they wouldn't put anybody on tape. Yeah, and they often won't because they're afraid of the backlash. Right. So I found somebody and I thought, well, I went above and beyond. You know, I'm, I'm doing their job for them. That's mm-hmm. how I felt about it. But the truth is, even though... We, you, I, people who have a science background, who people think science is important, will make one set of decisions. We're not society. That's true. And, and just because we say something to society, just right. because I put something out in the ether, doesn't mean people are going to go, I now think like you do. Right. And the other problem I think that, that you in particular face, mm-hmm. uh, you as a person who connects so directly with your audience, is I, I'm on a show that you know, does all sorts of different things. And so you don't know when I'm going to come on the air. You may think science is the most boring thing in the world, but I'm listening to NPR because I'm really into politics or I'm really mm. into global, you know, uh, warfare, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then I come along and so I've got to get you interested and tell you something interesting. Whereas the people who seek you out have already self-identified as being people who are interested in what you're talking about. Yes. And one of the challenges I think that you face or this new media faces is broadening the audience. Completely. So that you're not just getting the nerds to listen to you, but getting people who aren't interested but would be if they could be exposed to it. Yes. I think preaching to the converted is a, it's a dangerous thing that a lot of people, um, we fall into that trap sometimes because it's obviously the easiest trap to fall into. And I think that sometimes preaching to the converted can lead to staying in an echo chamber, which Mm -hmm. can lead to a lot of problems. Like another big thing that I'm really interested in, aside from science journalism, is atheism advocacy. And one (laughs) thing that I've learned over the years is how kind of not to be... uh, 
a sort of militant or new atheist because as easy as it is when everybody around you is also a non-believer to kind of poke fun or to use some methods that maybe are less than savory to rally the base, I always stop and go, wait, science comes first. And the worst way, the, the absolute worst way to get people interested in science is to look them in the eye and go, you're dumb because you're Christian. Right. That's not going to appeal to anybody. And I've also, over the years, been really learning that politics is very important to me and, and kind of civic duty and, and engaging in the, pro, in the democratic process. And so for me, those things go hand in hand. Being scientifically literate and stepping up and voting for things that are going to affect our lives, you need both. I think that you desperately need science literacy if you're going to make decisions about how your community and your country should be run. And so I've been moving into a model of trying, I, I still call myself a science communicator, but I've definitely been trying to do more work that's I guess maybe more adjacent to science mm -hmm. where I can kind of bring the science in mm -hmm. but but have a broader um, umbrella because it's true. Like there are a lot of people out there and thank you so much everybody who's listening. I know a lot of you are either science nerds or you're just like cool nerds who are like it's kind of hard and I don't get it but you make it sort of interesting and that's awesome. But there are definitely so many more people out there who are either resistant to science or who are just kind of like blah about it. You know what I mean? It's not even so much the people who have like a political agenda to be anti-science because who knows if we'll reach the Ken Hams of the world. I don't think we will. But just the people who are kind of like, I don't know, science is weird and hard and it doesn't affect me. Right. And you're like, no, it really does. And it doesn't have to be weird and hard. Right. No, it, it's, it's, it's weird and hard and wonderful and interesting. And if you get to spend a little time with it, you get to appreciate the <clears throat> amazing things that it's brought to our civilization. I mean, it's just, I mean, it was science that figured out that there weren't chariots pulling the sun across the sky, okay? Yeah. Maybe you're sad about that, but, but <laughs> the things that you know about the natural world were done by scientists. And, and the fact that now, oh, we all know that, you know, we, you know electricity, electric lights, you know. Um, um, we take it for granted. Or, or they like to say, you know, your cell phone, I mean, I mean your, your GPS on your phone is based on the uh, Einstein's general relativity. I don't even understand exactly why that is, but I'm convinced. Yeah. <laughs> I'm satisfied <laughs> that it's right. Anyway, all these things that are implemented in the world that we love, yeah, some somebody figured out the underpinnings of it, and um, I think that stuff is. I mean, I just get. I mean, I get goosebumps. You know, like when I pick up. I, you're here in Southern California. I don't know if you've been up to the Huntington Library in in San Marino, but they have this amazing collection of books. And uh, Dan Lewis is the. Uh, the I don't know his title. I'm sorry, Dan, but he's in big shot over there. Gotcha. And. Um, he took me on a tour a number of years ago, and he pulled out this book, and he opened it up, and I said, what's that? And he says, it's uh, Newton's copy, Newton's own copy of Principia Mathematica. Jeez. And you can see his li little notes in the margins of where he wanted to change things for the next edition or whatever he was going to do. You just go, holy smokes, that's like our civilization. And this week, while I'm out in, 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 here, in, I'm here in Southern California, I was up at Mount Wilson and the Carnegie uh, observatories mm -hmm. in Pasadena, and they pulled out this plate for me, and it's the plate, it's two plates taken on consecutive days by Edwin Hubble mm -hmm. that shows a Cepheid variable star that was in one plate and not the other, and it was what enabled him to prove that the Andromeda Nebula wasn't just a cloud of stars in the Milky Way, but was another galaxy altogether. Now, 
That took us down from, you know, the Earth. We went from the Earth as the center of the solar system to the solar system as the center of the uh, Milky Way. And now we're not even, you know, and then the, we're on only on the edge of the Milky Way. And now we're not even the only galaxy in the universe. So this was one of those huge takedowns for your anthropocentric friends mm -hmm. to say, hey, guys, you're not as important as you think. And it's there on two kind of nondescript pieces of glass. And I'm staring at it in the basement of this place. Now... That's like, I mean, that's like visiting the Ark of the Covenant or whatever, yeah. you know? It's like, it's like this is our civilization on the table. And, and if I can bring that, I mean, if you, so you're talking about the spark. People who can, people can sit calmly and say, yeah, okay, what, when are the sports and weather coming on? You know, the news, uh, okay, fine. But if you can't get excited about the fact that our civilization has been shaped by these kinds of findings... Well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you, really. And I think, you know, I think that one thing that you are so beautifully offering, even right now in this moment, is to hear your excitement, I think sometimes can be infectious. And I think that it can create a spark in somebody else. And maybe it's not specifically about that discovery, but it's about like, oh, it's so cool to hear somebody care so much and to, to have this emotional attachment to knowledge that I feel like I've been lacking. And maybe I need to pick up a book again. Maybe I need to go visit one of these places again and see what it's like. I had um, a less less similar, but uh, I guess a similar but less cool experience when I went to Mount Wilson with all of my nerd brigade friends, who oh. you know many of them, because we we basically decided to take a nerd field trip and we pooled our money and rented uh, the 60 inch yeah. for the night. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely amazing. And it's so crazy. Like you go downstairs to go to the bathroom and you bring your little red flashlight because your eyes have to adjust. And there's Hubble's locker yeah. just right there. Yeah, His that. name is on it. Yeah, and you're like, are locker you with a little, with a little, don't, don't, it's yeah. just insane. I, I mean, it's absolutely insane. Um, so I want to take a very quick break um, to, to thank our sponsor of this week's episode and also to save my file so it doesn't crash. Um, we'll be right back with Joe Palka. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
We're back with NPR science correspondent Joe Palka, and I want to talk to you about what you're doing now, but I also want to talk to you a little bit about, you've made reference to like, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but I want to know how did you transition? Because I think I have a lot of listeners who, um, who are in that weird part of their life where they're like, I, I want to go back to study science or I'm studying science, but I don't think I want to be a scientist and I'm not really sure. How, you did it before a lot of people did it. I think before it was like, science communication wasn't even a career path and you were, you were considered and you still are considered a, a journalist. You went straight yeah. into journalism, but you came from science, social sciences. Right. I, you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that I agree with you. I think science communication was a career path even then. Um, maybe they just didn't call it that. Maybe, yeah. you know, there, there, so yeah, maybe that's, so I was the president of the National Association of Science Writers just before there was this unification, I guess you'd say, where there used to be public information officers on one side and journalists on the other side. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things that the public information officers said, which was true, which was we're all trying to communicate accurate science. Now, there probably are public communication officers who bend things a little bit, but most of the good ones didn't. Yes. And um, so, but the answer to your question about how I got involved was, um, <laughs> so I wound up in graduate school kind of by default. I was interested in sleep research. I went to Pomona College here in Claremont and I visited a friend in Stan at Stanford and Bill DeMent, who's the world's preeminent sleep researcher, had a lab in the sleep lab in the basement of my friend's dorm. Mm -hmm. Total happenstance. I went to visit him over Thanksgiving break and I didn't have a place to stay because I'm visiting a friend at college, so I slept in the sleep lab with electrodes. <laughs> and Did I, you make a little bit of money on the side? I don't recall. $10 a night, I remember like getting that. acetone in my eyes, which I didn't like very much. <laughs> but um, these, this was all play. It wasn't real research, but it was opportunity for the kids to do, for the kids, for the, my colleagues, my peers, to do sleep research. And there was something about looking at squiggly lines on a piece of paper and saying, oh, that person's dreaming, or that person's... I thought... No, it's like looking into somebody's brain. Mm -hmm. So I found that totally fascinating. And the other thing that I was interested in was vision and how uh, your eyes move around during the night. And what's that about? You're not looking at anything. Your eyes are closed. So what's happening? And, yeah. and, and so I, I wrote a senior thesis about a guy's research who was interested in the, the, what vision and might mean for sleep or what was going on. And uh, then I, went, I applied to medical school and didn't get in. So I sort of said, okay, what am I going to do? And I applied to graduate school. Of course, I got in everywhere. It was, it, <laughs> it was just, I wasn't cut out to be a doctor. Um, but I actually sought out the guy who I wrote my senior thesis about. And I said, could I come and work with you? Because you're doing sleep and vision, which were two things I was really fascinated by. Mm -hmm. And he said, sure. And when I got to his lab in 1977 at UC Santa Cruz, he'd abandoned his vision research. Oh, no. <laughs> And he was interested in uh, thermoregulation and how body temperature is regulated through the night. And both of these were, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, anyway, I'm not going to go into it. But, but that was, so, so I sort of did, did graduate school because, you know, I don't know what else to do yep. kind of thing. And, um, and then I didn't even wind up doing what I thought I wanted to do in graduate school. And so four years in, I'm kind of going, oh, let's see, now what? Uh, and uh, I saw an ad in Science Magazine. Uh, from AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, about this thing called the Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellows Program. The program was already four or five years old, maybe longer even. 
when I got into it. Um, but it said, we'll take graduate students or undergrads in some cases out of the lab and into a news organization for 10 weeks during the summer. And so I thought, well, this sounds like might be fun. So I, I turned us way highly competitive. I had no idea, you know, it was like 300 applicants for 20 spaces, mm -hmm. but somehow or other I got it. I had a friend who'd gotten it the year before and she wrote a really nice letter for me. And so I got in and I just, the minute I, I went to Channel 9, CBS in Washington, D.C., uh, this is great. I mean, you're telling all these interesting things and it's a different thing every day and you walk in with a camera and they, oh, everybody falls all over themselves to be your friend. And, <laughs> and so... It's it, a little bit of a different time back yeah, then, I Well, think. so still, this was, yeah. <laughs> we can go, we can go, we can go on, right. <laughs> still, you know, people get very excited when, you know, NBC comes to interview them most That's of true. the time. true, yeah. Uh, not as much, I get it, but but... And I wasn't even CBS writ large. But if you're the local news and you come and you're on the local, everybody says, oh, look, you're on the local news. It was a good. So I wound up saying, this is what I got to do. And I finished my dissertation. You know, I was at that ABD point. Yeah. Had all my data. Had to write it up. And I, I figured, well, I could do that lickety split. But it took almost a year. You yep, know, yep. It always does. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went out onto the market. And just like you, I hustled my butt off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did everything and anything and anything for anybody and you said but, you say yes a lot at yes, the beginning but unlike you i was offered a uh, a temporary full-time job as a desk assistant at an nbc washington bureau okay because of people i had met during my summer and i just took it took a full-time part part-time i don't know temporary whatever but that was the start and i mm -hmm. only wound up doing that for a few weeks and then this television station hired me back and then but 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 at that point I was doing the silly part of journalism, which was the, the headline grabbing stuff, and and in local news at least as it was then, and I suspect it still is now. You don't have time to do a nuanced story. You can't. You it's can't. it's what are the yeah what are the three what's things on to take tonight? Away? Mm -hmm. Not what do you have a story tonight? It's what's on tonight. So you're very dependent on hospital public information officers to find you a doctor and a patient, and they're pitching their docs, and it's it's just it's. It's bad. It's not. It's not you even making choices about what to cover. It's you scrambling to cover something every day. Yeah. But they had a science correspondent, so that was good. So I actually wound up becoming the producer for the science unit or science and health unit. We mostly did health. And then, and this was the big. So that was great. I mean, three years into my uh, career change, and I was working as a science producer, which is what I said I wanted to do. And again, talking about reaching audiences that weren't interested in science, I figured I was in the perfect spot because nobody was interested. My bosses weren't interested. Yeah. The people watching weren't well, interested. And that really is like local news is really one of the best places to reach people. Unfortunately, the format doesn't allow you to do right. it the way you want to, but it right. is the place where the people are. It's, it's a great place. But mm. to tell you the truth, and this is where I fall down, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Yeah. I mean, I, I did it for a while, but it was so not thoughtful and so knee-jerk and so predictable and so banal, I think, that um, I was, again, one of these crazy things. I'm sitting at my desk, the phone rings, and this guy says, a friend of mine who's the editor of Nature magazine would like to interview you about becoming the Nature U.S. correspondent. And I said, huh? He said, yeah. And then a few minutes later, the editor of Nature called and said, could I meet you tomorrow for breakfast and talk about offering your job? Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> and so I go down and meet him for breakfast, and he, we talk, and he and 
and then three months later I'm hired and uh, I'm working for nature. Now, there's certain, there's kind of complicated reasons why he made that call. Mm -hmm. I told you I was a fellow for the AAAS. So John Maddox, who's a communicator par excellence, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, but he was brilliant. I mean, he was just brilliant in the world that he worked in. But he he would do this. He fly. He worked in. He was in London, but he'd fly to Washington with the intention of hiring a journalist there for the magazine because the guy who was there, some one of the guys who was leaving. But he didn't do any preparation. <laughs> so he lands in Washington. It's three o'clock in the afternoon, and he's got to hire somebody by the next day. <laughs> so so he doesn't know anybody even to call. So he calls his friend Victor McElhaney, who's at the Knight Science Journalism Program at mm -hmm. MIT. But Victor's in Boston. He doesn't know anybody in Washington. So he calls the AAAS Mass Media Fellows Program because he knows they get people like me into, and says, you got anybody in Washington who's working and might be looking for a job? And I'm in Washington and I'm working and I didn't think I was looking for a job, but I had a PhD and I had the right credentials. So he, they gave, the, their office gave him my name and he asked me and, and so that's how it connected. But Unbelievable, you know, and, but it also it shows that when people are nice to you, like the, when I after I got the AAAS fellow program thing, I was a big advocate for the program, and anytime mm -hmm. they wanted to trot me out for donors or anything like that, I was you know I'm here. It was great, fantastic, it opened a whole new world for me. I think it's going to really improve the the level of science journalism. So, I think when people help you on your way up, you got to be grateful and help them back. Completely. And, and that's what land, landed me this job. And like you said, even being nice to people, not in a global sense, but literally being nice to them. Like when you are just nice to people and easy to work with, yeah. it goes so far, especially in the industry that both of us work in in many ways, which is kind of like uh, media, when you're, you know, and not just print, but when you're in the radio, when you're in television, when you're on the web, it's like people can be divas and people can be a pain in the ass. And so just literally being a team player and being easy to work with opens up so many doors. And that's important. <coughs> Sorry. Of um, course. Got that out. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, there are divas that you're willing to put up with because they're so incredibly good at what they do. Yeah, or because they just draw a huge audience. Right, and and so you put up with that. But yes, I think. Um, but nobody wants to actually work with them. They no. they they feel like they have to. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. There's, I mean, sometimes. <laughs> Divas can be divas in one direction and very friendly to people that they like. Yeah, and that's so you true. And so you can, you, can, you can be a real pain in the neck, and I've known people like this toward most people, but when you have your little nucleus of people that you really like to work with and that you trust and you feel good about, those people love you. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's about... That's really about exercising the, the bone that we all kind of sometimes neglect, which is our empathy bone, and remembering, trying to remember where people come from. Mm -hmm. Like the same thing when we were talking earlier, which this is a huge departure, but we were talking about scientists sometimes not wanting to communicate their science, science or being resistant, but then at the same time talking about why it's important, but then getting pissed when their graduate students do it. But it is, it's a tough position to be in, I think. It's probably a tough position to be in when you do really important work and it takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of energy, and then you, you've you been burned. 
And then you've talked to journalists who have totally misrepresented your work, who have, you know, put it under a headline that you would never have approved. And I've had this problem. I mean, I'm not sure if I mentioned this recently on the podcast, but one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that most journalists don't pick their own headlines. Mm -hmm. It's a different person's Mm -hmm. job to Mm -hmm. do that in a lot of outlets. And so I remember very specifically after the Higgs field was... Um, not, you know, after it was announced that the discovery was pretty solid and trying to do a piece about what is the Higgs boson and realizing very quickly, I don't think I can do a piece about what the Higgs boson does justice. So I'm going to do a piece about why it's important that we found the Higgs boson and what it really means that we found something that we always kind of knew was there, but mm-hmm. we hadn't found and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And a big part of it, there's like this little tangent I went on and blah, 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 people call it the God particle, but it's really a bastardization of the goddamn particle because it's been so hard to find for mm-hmm. so long. And blah, But when they call it the God particle, it gives it this spiritual resonance that's actually most scientists get pissed about. And then, and I was like, it's irresponsible journalism to, to, to repeat this term God particle over and over. And what did they call my my <laughs> my episode? I, think I know where this is going. <laughs> exactly. And I don't remember specifically, but yeah, it was something like God particle found. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and but that's that's something that uh that I think a lot of people don't realize you are a bit in a vice at that point. But so so you went basically from television that you weren't pleased with mm-hmm. into print where you were feeling, I think, more comfortable and more at home. Uh, yeah, I was certainly more comfortable because these, you know, they was writing for, <laughs> was writing for my was writing for the graduate students I used to be one mm-hmm. of. Um, and that's for true. Other it is a very insular. In some ways, when we think of science and nature, we think of it's it's the publication for the people who read publications. You right. know, it's it's science for scientists. Right. It was it, the front of the book was different. It was more journalistic in the sense that we went after people than when there was a lot of stories about malfeasance. So, you know, scientists don't like to talk about misconduct in science, but we loved it, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's more common than we like to admit. Yeah, so that's another thing that mm-hmm. I'm, I think the science community has fallen down badly on. And I agree. <laughs> I'm, I've got... I've, I'm going to keep going. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but that's good. Yeah, I know. You want to. At this <laughs> if, if, if not for policing we wouldn't have, we wouldn't know about things like the Bad Lancet studies mm-hmm. that linked uh-huh. Wakefield, that Wakefield linked autism to vaccines with. Right. You know, if we didn't, if we weren't critical within our own community and if journalists right. weren't critical and um, investigative and had kind of that, that, that skeptical eye, things like that would perpetuate. And that's so scary and so dangerous. Right, but, but... I don't know a single responsible science journalist or even a single responsible news outlet that talks about Wakefield in a positive way or that Lancet article in a positive way, and yet it doesn't go It doesn't away. die. It's true. And so what's that about? You know, I think Seth Manukin wrote a really good book about it called The Panic Virus, and a big uh, thing that he kind of talks about is this idea that something that catches your attention that's like a holy holy shit moment goes viral very easily but the retraction just doesn't Mm -hmm. it doesn't get the same kind of traction and then when you have a celebrity culture that perpetuates a myth or or even a political culture that perpetuates a myth and then you link that to desperate parents who need answers where there's no fault being placed on these parents they desperately are you know stressed and worried and they have sick kids and they want to know why and there seems to be an answer that doesn't require a lot of I don't want to say it doesn't require a lot of thought, but it just seems obvious. It seems Occam's razor to them. And I think we're naturally, 
we naturally naturally are drawn to those kinds of answers. And so when you go, no, 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 it's more nuanced, it's more complicated, and oh, that's actually been retracted, and it's not really true. And but we don't really have a good answer for you. For some people, that's just not an, that's just not enough. Right. And I think that that's why we see this perpetuating. But it's like Jenny McCarthy doesn't help. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like these people go, like I don't care what the scientists say. This is true. Right. Scientists are only in it to get money for their research. And which is, they'll tell us anything. Which is the funniest argument to me. It's like the argument of arguments that it's like so ridiculous when you hear politicians talking about the, you know, James Inhofe, who has a position of authority over science in this country, and he's sitting here saying that global warming is the greatest hoax perpetrated against the American public, and that scientists only uh, talk about global warming because they're trying to fund their research, and it's like, scientists are really poor. I don't think that people get that. Most working scientists have no money. They're hardly keeping their labs open. They're trying really hard to continue their research at all costs, but it's 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 not lucrative and and they can't just lie and then get money from the government this episode is brought to you by kia's first three-row all-electric suv the kia ev9 with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more ask your kia dealer for availability no system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It just doesn't work that way. It's like, talk about red tape and bureaucracy. This is a place where it's just exorbitant. It's just like, it's so ludicrous. If you've ever been anywhere near the bureaucracy involved in trying to get funding for a lab, then it's just such a laughable charge that anybody would just lie about science in order to get, to pad their pockets with all that, their research money. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to maintain a respectful silence. You Interesting. Can, well, no, I just feel like uh, this gets into this question of whether I'm a journalist or, or uh, it's an true. advocate. And, um, and it's you're t- saying things that uh, make sense to me, mm-hmm. but that's why I say I'm going to maintain a respectful silence. Yeah, I, uh, uh, NPR has frequently been accused of a liberal bias. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't mind if we're accused of an accuracy bias. <laughs> uh, and so, if accuracy and, and a liberal standpoint go hand in hand, well, so be it. I mean, the trouble is. Yeah, it's like what you were saying, the hypocrisy of, I like this kind of science, but I don't like that kind of science. And so I'm, I'm trying to say there's a method for answering questions. It doesn't get complete answers all the time, but science is a process for understanding the natural world. And what I say to people about global warming is, there is no scientific controversy, and in my mind, no doubt that there's a human. There's a signature of human activity on the global climate. How big a signature? What we should do about it? Those are political que- yes. questions to some extent. This, how big is the scientific? What we well, should what do we about should it do. is political. Sure. But, but those are facts as we know them. Now, it may be a hundred years from now, people will look back and say, "I can't believe scientists all thought it was a." human activity when we now know it's this natural phenomenon we don't understand, we, they didn't understand then. You know that's possible. It's completely possible. It's, but that uncertainty is lost on everybody, you know, and because, I, because scientists 
can be wrong. It's not, it's not the absolute truth they know. They know the truth as best as it can be known today. Based on the evidence, that, based on how we know how to interpret evidence, based on the tools we have. And I think what we end up doing sometimes, which is very dangerous in the media and in the scientific community, is because the nuance is lost on the public, because the idea of it's either this way or it's that way. It's, it's a binary way that we like to think. And global warming is either ultimately true or it's ultimately a hoax. There's no nuance in the middle that we, end to, we tend to err on the side of complete and total confidence when and, and truth and fact and prove. Like these are words I would never use when I'm writing something. I would never say so-and-so proved that. It's just, it's just not responsible journalism. And it's funny because as much as I freely admit that I'm a hardcore liberal... And I'm a really progressive thinker. I'm like left of left. I have a very conservative mindset when it comes to talking about scientific um, uh, discovery. And I, I like to talk about, well, there's evidence that that uh, contributes to a body of knowledge that um, is is leaning towards this kind of understanding. And you've got to be careful in your language because it can be co-opted for political purposes. I hate that the climate change conversation is a political conversation more than a scientific one. Um, same thing we know with uh, right to life and right to choose kinds of issues that have such scientific underpinnings, but they've been really co-opted by, uh, I, I think personally, by um, a religious right and heavy kind of Koch brothers funded political machine. Um, and it's tough because then all of a sudden, like for me, I'm lucky because I get to say that's what I think because I'm not working for another institution. I'm a free voice and I can kind of operate outside of this vacuum and say science is not just science. Science is only science as much as it can be understood by the public. Science is only science as much as it is utilized for good or for bad, you know, like People like to talk about eugenics or they like to talk about um, the Manhattan Project and these things. And, and a lot of times scientists get really like skeeved out by that. And they go, no, no, let's just talk about the engineering involved in building an atomic bomb. It's like, no, we need to talk about the implications of this too. Mm -hmm. That's an important conversation to have. So, so for me, the, the politics and the, and the sociology of science, is, it's heavily interwoven. And, and science, as we often forget, is done by people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, yeah. we do science. Yeah. And we have to learn from our mistakes and we have to go past it. But there is still kind of this, I don't know, this runaway mob mentality, this anti-science runaway mob mentality in the American public that is not, I don't blame the people and I don't blame their lack of science education. I really blame like intense powers that be that intentionally make claims in order to divide the public and in order to advance some sort of political agenda. And that to me makes me squeamish sometimes about being uh, less than firm about something like climate change. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a tough, you got one foot on both sides of this, yep. of this icebreak, I guess yep. we could say. Yep. Well, I mean, it's a little different. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a world where we don't say, this is what you should do, or this is who's yeah. right, or this is what you know you should believe. Um, but I'm also flabbergasted that in the face of evidence, people come up with conclusions that I just can't, I don't understand. Exactly. Yeah, because I think that 
for some people, the idea of evidence and the idea of evidence-based thinking is not the only source of information. I think a lot of people very truly think that, you know, Colbert's truthiness, how does it feel in your gut? What did your pastor say? What kinds of uh, social ramifications does that? All these things play in to making the best decision for them. And and for some people who are like more materialists or who are, um, who over years and years and years of academic training developed a scientific mindset that is just insane to us that anybody would say, well, the evidence looks like this, but I still think it's that way because that makes more sense to me personally. Well, I mean, I'm... Uh, it's a tough... I'm, well, but, you know, I... I I think scientists can be guilty of that sometimes too. You know, they Completely. people tend to overlook data that that, that don't doesn't don't fit with their uh, personal convictions sometimes. And they, you know, I've talked to people who don't understand what double-blind placebo-controlled trials are really supposed to do, mm -hmm. and they're supposed to take out unconscious bias. Well, mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist, right? I know about unconscious bias. I'm not saying you're lying or cheating or stealing or anything, but have you ever heard of unconscious bias? You know. Yeah. And so, um, and it's true because you know what? One thing that we're really bad about when we when we think about how the scientific community actually, and I say we, I'm not even really in the community like the way that I used to be. People don't publish negative results. They no, don't publish well, negative findings. That's an, that's another. I yeah. mean, there's there's listen. That's the other thing. There's plenty of reforms that could be enacted that would make the scientific community better. There's a lot of money being spent on research. Maybe some of it isn't being spent the right way. I don't think that scientists have been as self-critical about their process as they could be. We're, that's the kind of story I write for Science and Nature. And that's important. Uh, the, the stories I write more now are, here's what science is, here's what it can do, here's what it can't do, this is why it's interesting. I mean, I'm almost, I try almost always to focus on things that I know are unimportant. Because I don't want you to think that I've solved anything, you know. Mm -hmm. I've, I talk, if I'm, I, my, I have a story that's supposed to go on about yeast genetics and how yeast evolve in the laboratory. And at some point I had to say, there are implications here even for those people who aren't passionate about yeast, you know. <laughs> that's and, an amazing line. Right. And so, yeah, exactly. And to me, if it were just science, I wouldn't bother with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I would just say this is really cool evolutionary science and it's understanding the the uh, the mutation rate in yeast in a controlled environment and it says something about anyway other large populations of dividing organisms. Mm. But but I, I but still in the know. news world have to say something about why it's relevant. Exactly, and uh, because other people don't know, right. and it's it's that echo chamber thing when. If yeah, if you're a scientist, you know why yeast is important. You know why so many people use it as a model organism. Right. And but outside of that, it's like, why are you studying yeast? What does that have to do with me? Well, to make a better beer, of course. <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. So I've taken so much of your time, and I know that you you have a very busy weekend. So I just before I close, um, I close every episode the same way, where I ask my guests two questions, and I'm I'm almost more than anyone else really interested to hear what your answers are. And I've got to thank you even before I do that. Uh, for kind of reminding me, I think, and for opening my eyes to the fact that I think I, I have to remember to be more self-critical, to be more, to, to look inside the community more and to, to self-police. And, you know, I think sometimes just waving the banner of science willy-nilly can be very dangerous. I think that's what I said to you the first time we met, actually. I think so. I think so. <laughs> Maybe so it's a theme. <laughs> I want to thank you for that. And I hope you never stop saying that to okay. me. Um, and, and so, but before... 
before we everybody gets to hear how they can keep up with what you're up to now, let me go ahead and ask you those two questions. And the first one is, when you look to the future in whatever context is meaningful to you, what are you most concerned about? What are you most worried about? What keeps you up most at night? Um, you know, I'm uh, two two things. Mm -hmm. um, religious extremism, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I'm actually quite terrified about what's happening. Um, when they have pictures on the news of people knocking down religious uh, articles and breaking them just to prove, you know, we don't want icons around. We don't want no icons around, religious icons around here. When I see those kinds of things being done in the name of a religion, um, uh, I get very uncomfortable. And I started mm -hmm. getting really, really, I mean, I have two kids that are growing up and, you know, they're in college, but I suddenly thought, we don't have beheadings in Washington and we don't have gang violence. I mean, with in a cultural war sense where, mm -hmm. I mean, there is gang violence, but but not not for kids that, you know, are going to college. It's usually, anyway, I'm really worried about the social disruption of this religious extremism that, that um, might sweep across the world. And I don't know how, I don't know what what's going to happen, but I... It's definitely and gaining traction. Anybody who has the answer worries me. Exactly. And so, I mean, did, did you read this this cover article in, in The Atlantic this month about what is ISIS really and where uh, did it come from? I mean, it's, it's... I haven't read it. I've been talking about it because somebody was describing a lot of the contents. Very eye-opening. And uh, I do... Uh, it's my to-read list. Yeah, I, the only reason I read it is because I was... Um, not the only reason, but I've been... Tra I've been on planes a lot, you right, know? Right. <laughs> so you get it's like the one time when you buy news uh, magazines at newsstands and then right. read. Right. So, but coupled with that, I think I would I would say I, I hope that the planet remains livable, uh, mm. uh, whether it's running out of water. I, I used to think we'd run out of fossil fuels in my lifetime, but I don't think that's going to happen. But just that the planet remains. I mean, I I I worry that we may have to pour aerosols into the atmosphere and that my children or my grandchildren, should that ever happen, will never see a blue sky yeah. because we had to do something to increase the planet's albedo. You know, I, that scares me. Um, so those are the two things. And that's quite possible. And then on the flip side of that, the other question I ask, which is like less of a bummer, is when you do look to the future, what are you most hopeful for? Like what, what excites you and, and what gives you a positive outlook? Well, I'm, I'm going to be a little Pollyanna. Pollyanna-ish here and say what we're doing right now is what gives me hope because I think, I, so the way I look at it is, I, I'm, I like my profession. I think journalism is important. I think communi public communication is important. I think that's what, a, I think you're right, ultimately a democracy is based on people's better understanding of what they're getting and not getting from the people who are leading them. And so they should be informed as well as possible. I've worked for an organization that does that. I think there's some newspapers that are still trying to do that. But there is a new world emerging. And as long as it's populated by intelligent people who are driven by worthy goals, then I think that's great. And it's not, it's not my world, uh, but I'm sure that if it were 30 years ago and you know, you and I would be vying for the same <laughs> same <laughs> audience, and we'd be pushing each other like crazy. It would be science and nature all over again, you know, to 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 do great things and 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 to make people entertained and and informed and all that stuff. So, well, and you may be surprised, but I think for myself and for some of my colleagues, as as young as we are, or as kind of like new media oriented as we are, I think I think NPR really still is um, a goal 
for a lot of us. It's an ideal and it's a goal and it's a place where we would, um, we would love to be kind of accepted and to be welcomed and to feel like, because it matters. And it, it is hard, I think, even for a lot of people to find something that, that they feel does have meaning, you know, and to find something where they feel like, wow, I really am making a difference. I really am reaching people in a way that's really necessary. And it's one of the last kind of bastions, I think, of really legitimate journalism. Well, I like it there. <laughs> I, I don't want to be wheeled out feet first, but I, I like it. I want to stay for a while yet. I think we're all very, very glad that you like it there and that you um, offer us what you do um, and have for so long. So on that note, I want to thank you, Joe, and I want you to go ahead and let everybody who's listening know um, you know, where they can find you, how they can say hi on the interwebs, but also like what, you know, kind of the, um, your, your schedule of the work that you do. Okay, well, um, I'm, I'm not the world's hardest person to find. <laughs> uh, I have a Twitter handle, I'm Jay Palka. I have a Facebook page, I'm Joe Palka. I also have this thing, Joe's Big Idea, which is not a name I chose, but it stuck. <laughs> and, um, and so there's a web page at NPR for Joe's Big Idea, and you can see all the stuff I've been doing. And the idea, I had to come up with a tagline. You know, everybody needs a tagline. So I'm exploring the minds and motivations of scientists and inventors. And I'm always looking for interesting, cool people to talk to, and, and I'm always open to discussions about what I'm doing. People think, every once in a while, somebody calls and say, I say, hi, it's Joe Balka. And they go, uh, is this Joe Balka? I say, yeah. I just called your number. How did I get you? Because <laughs> I answered my phone. <laughs> now, I, I don't hope, I, it could become a mistake, but it hasn't yet. You know, people think I'm like some, some 10 secretaries uh, below uh, yeah. me or protecting me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm much more accessible than that. Um, but that's where you can find me. And, and you can listen to NPR every show, every day, and I'll pop up from time to time. <laughs> I can't be more specific than that. No, I love that. It's like, what do they call it? The, the type of gambling, like the intermittent rewards, right, is it, where right. it's like you're more likely. Right, 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 right. We've, we've got you, we, yes, we're doing unclassical conditioning. Exactly. Well, Joe, again, I just, I can't thank you enough. This was uh, so wonderful, and I'm so glad you're here in town, and I'm so glad that my audience got a chance to get to know you. Um, just thank you. <laughs> Great fun. And everybody who's listening, thank you for sticking with me week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we get together to talk nerdy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.